Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is February 26, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading from the beginning to 328D of Plato's Protagoras, and these are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts in today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today is the first of three sessions on the Protagoras, which features the sophist of the same name. Protagoras famously declared that man is the measure of things, which is to say that man is capable of knowing the limits of one thing and all things. But if this is the case, in this dialogue does Protagoras display correct measurement in the professed wisdom of his sophistry? On this question, there may be a particular point that Plato wanted to demonstrate in the particularly rich drama of this dialogue, and so I thought I would attempt reading the selected passages in as much of a dramatic fashion as I can muster. If this attempt has any effect, maybe we can place ourselves in front of Protagoras, as Socrates and young Hippocrates did, and in that experience consider whether virtue is teachable, as Protagoras claims it is. The first part of today's reading has both Socrates and Protagoras addressing the caution that should be applied in entrusting a soul to the teaching of a sophist. In the next part, Socrates presents his reasons why virtue is not a thing that can be transmitted between souls, and in the final part, Protagoras presents his argument for the teachability of virtue. In their presentations, both Socrates and Protagoras attempt to locate the origin, or cause, of virtue. For Socrates, virtue's cause would seem especially important since he always holds that everything comes to be from a cause. Maybe we can consider this question, what is the cause of virtue? And in doing so, also consider the question, what is the thing we call virtue? But before we begin with the first reading, I wanted to provide a brief outline of the dramatic setting. The dialogue opens with a friend in conversation with Socrates, who has just returned from a visit to young Alcibiades. Everyone knows Socrates' admiration for the physical beauty of Alcibiades, but true to form, Socrates doesn't miss the opportunity to remind us that the unlimited beauty of wisdom far exceeds the limits of physical beauty, so much so that Socrates has paid no mind to Alcibiades, who went mostly unnoticed. Socrates reveals that he has been in the company of the sophist Protagoras, purported to be the wisest man alive, if, as Socrates qualifies the widespread belief, it is possible for such a superlatively wise man to exist. We learn that Protagoras has been in the city for two days a fact which, when discovered in the evening by young Hippocrates, causes him to race to Socrates' house early in the morning to relay the good news. At the prospect of meeting Protagoras, Hippocrates is clearly full of anticipatory pleasure, to use a term Socrates applied to the soul's capacity and recollection, which we encountered in our three sessions on Plato's Philebus, completed two weeks ago. Socrates inquires into the source of Hippocrates' excitement, and is told that Protagoras has, to quote Hippocrates, a monopoly on wisdom, of which Hippocrates wants a share. Unlike Socrates, however, Protagoras does not dispense wisdom for free, 
And since neither Hippocrates nor his friends have sufficient money to meet Protagoras's price, the young wisdom seeker begs Socrates to intercede on his behalf. Socrates does so by taking Hippocrates to Protagoras for an audience, where they find two other great sophists, Hippias and Prodicus, in attendance. But first, Socrates quizzes Hippocrates on what he expects to receive from the sophist, and this is where the first reading begins. I'll just turn on the screen sharing here, and I'll display this reading, which I thought, if you don't mind, I would try to read this section and just see if I can present it in a bit of a dramatic format that might bring us into that scene ourselves and to see how we would treat these various characters. And so this is the first part of the, the first section of the reading. And I call this being a knowledgeable consumer of knowledge because Socrates actually uses that term, becoming a consumer of knowledge. And he asks Hippocrates especially uh, what it is to consume knowledge, what is required to, to be a wise consumer of knowledge. And so this is from 312a to 313c. And Socrates is with Hippocrates. Hippocrates has just arrived at Socrates' house in the morning and is very anxious to have an audience with Protagoras. So Socrates says, And if somebody asks you what you expect to become in going to Protagoras? He blushed in response. There was just enough daylight now to show him up. And he said, If this is at all like the previous cases, then obviously to become a sophist. What? You? Wouldn't you be ashamed to present yourself to the Greek world as a sophist? Yes, I would, Socrates, to be perfectly honest. Well, look, Hippocrates, maybe this isn't the sort of education you expect to get from Protagoras. Maybe you expect to get the kind of lessons you got from your grammar instructor, or music teacher, or wrestling coach. You didn't get from them technical instruction to become a professional, but a general education suitable for a gentleman. That's it, exactly. That's the sort of education you get from Protagoras. Then do you know what you are about to do now, or does it escape you, I said? What do you mean? that you are about to hand over your soul for treatment to a man who is, as you say, a sophist. As to what exactly a sophist is, I would be surprised if you really knew. And yet, if you are ignorant of this, you don't know whether you are entrusting your soul to something good or bad. But I think I do know, he said. Then tell me what you think a sophist is. I think, he said, that as the name suggests, he is someone who has an understanding of wise things. Well, you could say the same thing about painters and carpenters, that they understand wise things. But if someone asked us, wise in what respect, we would probably answer for painters, wise as far as making images is concerned, and so on for the other cases. And if someone asked, what about sophists? What are the wise things they understand? What would we answer? What are they expert at making? What else, Socrates, should we say a sophist is expert at than making people clever speakers? Our answer would then be true, but not sufficient, for it requires another question. On what subject does a sophist make you a clever speaker? For example, a liar player makes you a clever speaker on his subject of expertise, the liar, right? Yes. All right then, on what subject does a sophist make you a clever speaker? It's clear that it's the same subject that he understands. Likely enough, says Socrates. And what is this subject that the sophist understands and makes his student understand? By God, he said, I really don't know what to say. I went on to my next point. Do you see what kind of danger you are about to put your soul in? If you had to entrust your body to someone and risk its becoming healthy or ill, you would consider carefully whether you should entrust it or not, and you would confer with your family and friends for days on end. But when it comes to something you value more than your body, namely your soul, 
And when everything concerning whether you do well or ill in your life depends on whether it becomes worthy or worthless, I don't see you getting together with your father or your brother or a single one of your friends to consider whether or not to entrust your soul to this recently arrived foreigner. No, you hear about him in the evening, right? And the next morning, here you are. Not to talk about whether it's a good idea to entrust yourself to him or not, but ready to spend your own money and your friends as well, as if you had thought it all through already and, no matter what, you had to be with Protagoras, a man whom you admit you don't know and have never conversed with, and whom you call a sophist, although you obviously have no idea what the sophist is to whom you're about to entrust yourself. I guess so, Socrates, from what you say, answers Hippocrates. So thanks for listening to that reading. I just wanted to see if we can pull some thoughts out of this in terms of what Socrates is saying here and how Hippocrates is approaching this and the idea of entrusting your soul to a teacher and the anxiety or, or eagerness that Hippocrates is showing towards this meeting with Protagoras. Protagoras is a very famous sophist who charges money for selling his knowledge. And Hippocrates is young. He doesn't have a lot of money. He and his friends don't have enough money to afford a visit to Protagoras. And yet they want this, this so-called monopoly on, on knowledge that Protagoras seems to have. And you know, so is it possible for somebody to be superlatively wise, as Protagoras seems to hold himself out to be, such that he can charge a uh, a huge fee for for selling knowledge? And you know, I'm wondering too what parallels there are between these ancient sophists and people today who sell their knowledge for money. I mean, we don't really use the term sophist anymore, but clearly there are people who sell their knowledge for money. And whether it's perhaps people in a formal educational setting or broadcasters who profess their opinions every day on opinion shows and, and earn a great deal of money for their views. And clearly people are following them and people seem to accept their teachings. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, Eva. Yeah, I see big deal of reasoning here. And reasoning reminds me of the definition and open-ended definition of all these terms. So something that we can label or define correct could be incorrect or unethical at another level. I want to go with being all these definitions in an open-ended perspective, depending on the situation. Absolutely. And and so Protagoras has professed knowledge on, I think essentially, you know, he's he's saying he knows how to make somebody a good citizen and to be a good contributor to society. And so how how do we define that scope of knowledge? Is that type of knowledge something that can have a definition or is it subject to continual change? And is anybody qualified to define himself as possessing that knowledge? Steve. Hello. Thanks again, as always, for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, I think maybe uh, set the context that uh, separate the idea of uh, teaching somebody useful skills to be a citizen or to function in, in the society you're in and the view that the sophists uh, were held in, in the ancient. So this is a time when most of the people we're hearing about are nobles or or in the, the rich classes. So it was considered below uh, people of this station to do things for hire or do things for salary. 
So there's a, a negative aura surrounding this office, which still exists today with the, with the term. But the idea of, of <clears throat> teaching somebody to be a, a good person, functioning member of society is not a negative idea. And to be make your living doing that, you know, my daughter's a teacher. She teaches Spanish high school. Her goals are to gain her employment, to sell her ability to teach the children in her class uh, Spanish. The same could be said for taking a history course or, you know, a course on good government and what Protagoras is teaching, how to speak. And, and it was very important if you're going to be a participant in the, in the society of Athens, you had to be a good speaker. You had to have rhetorical skills. So I think all of these are not by definition negative. I think they they have an aura of negativity surrounding them because of this, again, this uh, elitist, for lack of a better term, view of people that, that did things for hire. So as they, they talk about that, it's be perfectly fine for everybody to learn how to be a carpenter, to learn how to be a breeder of horses, any of those things but that you can't teach how to be a good citizen. But when you look at the society, there are certain things that can be taught and that I think we still aim at teaching our, our children nowadays, both on our own or sending them to a school or an after school or a piano teacher or a violin teacher, or you know, in some cases, even maybe a, a speech teacher to help in their, their abilities to uh, discuss things in a forum like this. You know, it's very important for people that are communicating throughout their, their business life to communicate in this sort of a venue. What's the most effective way to do that? If you can take a class and, and learn how to more effectively communicate on Zoom, I think that could lead to you having a better life and perhaps helping other people in your society have a better life. Absolutely. And, and you make a number of good points there, Steve. I think certainly the that sophists have a negative perception is something that uh, is presented right at the beginning of this reading where Socrates asks if uh, Hippocrates wants to be a sophist, wouldn't you be ashamed to present yourself to the Greek world as a sophist? Yes, I would, Socrates, to be perfectly honest, answers Hippocrates. So definitely there's that negative context. But, you know, as you say, we need to learn, obviously, and who do we learn from, I guess. Uh, and I mean, there's people who are in their living teaching, and you know that's not a bad thing. I mean, we need to earn a living somehow. We need to pay costs somehow. And so being a teacher isn't a bad thing. I guess maybe what's in question here is whether this particular skill is teachable. You made the good point that in Athens, they did require skills in rhetoric, skills in speaking, especially because of the assembly and everybody was to play a role in that. And so clearly that was a skill that was particularly important in Athens, maybe less so for the average person today, but um, something definitely worth considering. So thanks for raising those points and we can explore that kind of negative connotation some more. So we'll go to uh, Jose, then Nuria. So Jose. Hi. Uh, what I get from this uh, first part of the dialogue, that is uh, just the, this, this conversation that they have when they are walking and they didn't even enter in the house. I, I think to me, this is a classical example of uh, what uh, this uh, quote in the apology uh, and an examining life is not worth living. In this case, uh, Socrates is, is helping Socrates to examine his, this deep belief that he has that, uh, like in this case, Protagoras is, is going to teach him 
to be wise and everything. And but questioning Socrates, he came to a state of aporia when he said that uh, something like, uh, honestly, I don't, I don't know what, what else to say. Because by the, doing the, the lenkus, the dialectic, he, he noticed that uh, in reality, he didn't know anything about what a sophist is. He didn't know anything about Protagoras. He didn't know anything about anything. And yet, he was willing to get all his money, borrow money for the friends, and go and, and just jump to, to Protagoras to teach him. So mm. this is a good example of how Socrates, like uh, doing uh, examining your beliefs, and in this case, using very good, in this case, uh, the dialectic or elencos. It was a really great connection that you made, I think, in terms of the unexamined life is not worth living, that famous statement of Socrates that, uh, and maybe this is what he's then encouraging, I think, as you're saying, uh, that Hippocrates should do is examine what his life consists of, but also examine the the qualifications of the teachers that he chooses. And there's a good little quote, actually, I can read in a, in a minute, just about being a knowledgeable consumer. Um, so thank you for raising that. And also the point about dialectic, because the Socrates and Protagoras actually get into a dialectic in, in the next part that we'll do in two weeks on poetry in particular, on, on specific points in poetry. And so we'll see that dialectic exercise that they conduct in the second part of the uh, Protagoras that we'll read in two weeks. So thank you for raising both of those. We'll go to Nuria and then Adam. Nuria. Hi, um, thanks. Um, I wanted to point that I think this concern that Socrates has about if Protagoras is a good teacher, I think it's something that even today we keep having is a question that I think likely we th keep thinking about because in the moment we are going to select uh, what to learn, we also pick where to learn it. People pick very carefully if a university has the program they want. Some even try to pick certain teachers or even if you are going to learn any other thing like a language or a musical instrument. We also think a lot about the teacher, the methods, and if they are actually giving us that knowledge in a way that we can understand it and acquire that. So I think it's a question that even nowadays is still present. And also about if you can teach virtue. I think that today, the way we understand being a good person, we think that part of it can be taught and we try to teach it. Like, for example, we try to teach kids that you put garbage in the bin because that's good, keep things clean. So to a degree, I think that we have the idea that we can teach parts of it, but the bigger picture of what is virtue and if it can be taught, I think it's a more complex question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well put. I, I think definitely we we do try to teach each other, and maybe it's a question of uh, here Protagoras maybe doesn't think that he can learn. Maybe he thinks that he is the only one qualified to teach, but he himself has nothing to learn. So we may see that in the rest of the dialogue. But uh, it, it's a good point to raise, you know, the, the, the question of do we seek to teach each other and learn from each other and be open-minded about that? Also, like the, the way you mentioned the question of how we select a school to go to, a university or a particular teacher, for example. And that relates actually to this section that I have underlined here uh, near the end of that reading, where, you know, we can, if I'm choosing a university to go to, for example, I can read online reviews of it. I can 
look at one school's website versus another school's website to see maybe which one I think is better. But Socrates here makes the point that we should maybe go to people who care about us and to really see before we consign our soul to the teacher, he says, I don't see you getting together with your father or your brother or a single one of your friends to consider whether or not to entrust your soul to this recently arrived foreigner. And so here I think he's saying that Protagoras has come into their midst. He's not part of the community. He's not known. So what do you do in that case when you have no other basis for knowing how to choose a teacher of knowledge? And here I think he's suggesting is that you go to people who care about you. Uh, and that's why he's suggesting your father, your brother, or your friends. I thought it was an interesting point here, and maybe we can explore that more. So thanks for prompting that point. We'll go to Adam. Uh, thank you uh, for hosting this. This is my first time attending a uh, Toronto Philosophy Book Club. Welcome. Um, Nuria kind of mentioned the point that, that I had noticed about this when I read this uh, part about what you were saying about entrusting, how Socrates cautioned Hippocrates to, you know, he cautioned him about entrusting his soul for good or bad. I was shocked when I read this part because it reminded me of the very religious upbringing I had that was very cautionary against university education, um, which I eventually did do that. But in the time, they had this exact same attitude. They were like, why would you entrust your soul to this very secular atheist uh, people? These people, you know, the university systems, teachers are not necessarily the authority. And as I grew older, that became framed as anti-intellectualism, uh, anti-trust in science and teachers and, and school systems and public education. And yet here I was reading Socrates, you know, echoing the same thing that I'd, I had heard from suspicious, skeptic, religious uh, people. So I, I thought it was nice because Socrates just cut right to the heart of not being necessarily anti-intellectual. He wasn't saying, oh, nobody that is wise in the city knows anything. Don't listen to anybody. But he also was cautioning Hippocrates, saying, what what really are you doing? Don't don't entrust the the authority of Protagoras too much. Know what you're getting. Know the limits of what he can know or what he might know or what he's selling. Put it in perspective. He was preparing Hippocrates for a healthy skepticism. And uh, it was just it has shocked me how how he was able to walk that perfect that perfect line. Well, thank you. and and you you put that very well. and and I think the your own experience that you related uh, I, th I thought was very interesting. Uh, and and that's something that maybe a lot of people have encountered, whether it's with university or some other form of teaching, maybe some people have been cautioned against religious teaching. And so, we have to be somehow wise consumers of this. And so Socrates, you're quite right in pointing this out, that he's not saying to Hippocrates, don't go to Protagoras, stay away from... He's, he hasn't forbid Hippocrates from staying away from uh, Protagoras, but he's he's questioning him. He's, he, he's trying to get Hippocrates to question himself. And that's maybe, as, as Jose said, is to examine his life before he entrusts his soul. And I think one of the really important things here is this idea of entrusting your soul to a teacher it's not you're, you're entrusting your body, you're entrusting your actual soul. And Socrates makes a, an interesting point about that versus 
any sort of material gain that you can get. The soul, when it absorbs a teaching, he says later on, actually retains that teaching. And so you have to be especially careful about the type of teaching uh, that you allow yourself to absorb. And, and so question, you know, as you, as you said. So he doesn't tell Hippocrates not to go to Protagoras, but he says, be careful, question it before you go. And we'll see, actually, Protagoras himself expresses some caution. So uh, maybe just let me read this uh, this subsequent part here. It's a short part. It's from 314a to 314b. This is Socrates talking again to Hippocrates. He says, so if you are a knowledgeable consumer, you can buy teachings safely from Protagoras or anyone else. But if you're not, please don't risk what is most dear to you on a roll of the dice. For there is far greater risk in buying teachings than in buying food. When you buy food and drink from the merchant, you can take each item back home from the store in its own container. And before you ingest it into your body, you can lay it all out and call in an expert for consultation as to what should be eaten or drunk and what not and how much and when. So there's not much risk in your purchase, but you cannot carry teachings away in a separate container. You put down your money and take the teaching away in your soul by having learned it, and off you go, either helped or injured. So he makes that point that you once you absorb the teaching, you can't unabsorb it. Whereas food, you know, he says you can take it in a separate container, you can inspect and examine it before you absorb it, but you can't do that with with teaching. And I think that's maybe why he suggested consulting with people who care about you just to get that second opinion as to whether you've looked at this correctly before you dive in and and uh, engage in this process. So I thought that was a, an interesting point here that he makes about this particular type of consumption and the use of the term knowledgeable consumer. We have to be aware of who we're getting teaching from, but then that becomes a bit of a problem. Like, How do we gain knowledge about the knowledge that we're consuming? how what knowledge comes first so i think that's the uh that's an interesting question there eva your thoughts here the concern for teaching or learning and on the second hand there is a concern of the second opinion i think which is second opinion is as important as the first actual learning because we can consider the first learning as like the knowledge, but the second opinion, I guess, would turn into the wisdom, which that second opinion has to really be strong and the foundation has to be based in the soul, I guess. So if second opinion is like a conscious, like collective conscious or a group or a, even better like self-virtue in an examined way maybe that could eliminate the dangers of the first questionable learning so you can learn really not so perfect things at the first hand but I think humans virtue is capable of turning things into wisdom even if you learn from the right people i don't know if this was where you were going but i yeah. i kind of I, I like the idea of processing things with virtue or the community you trust to which you belong to i, I like that very much actually i think that's that's a, a very interesting point that virtue maybe is something that is not 
possessed by one person, but by a multitude of people. And we need to test the limits of virtue maybe uh, before we can accept it. And I like the way that you said that, you know, getting that second opinion might help to turn knowledge into wisdom by the application of virtue, which is not a, a property of a single person, but is a property of the collective. That's actually a really interesting point that we can explore is, is you know, is virtue a collective property or is it an individual property? I guess Protagoras would be saying it's an individual property and that he's qualified to teach it. Uh, but, you know, the, this interesting idea of the second opinion, it occurred to me as you were saying that, that a second opinion might be the process of testing the limits. So here's Protagoras. He's a sophist who is famous for saying man is the measure of all things, which means he's saying that man knows the limits of any one thing and the limits of all things together, which is a very bold statement in the present state of becoming when the limits really probably aren't knowable. And so here's Protagoras saying that we can know the limits and therefore we can measure, but maybe the limits are something that need to be tested and tested by this second opinion, by people we trust and people who care about us. So uh, interesting point. Thank you. Steve, your thoughts? I was actually um, disappointed with Socrates in this section. I feel that he's using protagonists like a straw man. He's like setting up this egotistical full of themselves, pop star sort of person as an example of what you have to be careful of. And again, he's picking out a very poor example because later when he gets to the heart, what I feel is the more universal part of the dialogue when talking about whether you can virtue can be taught. So he's already got this in our mind, this straw man example about how, oh, see, you can't you can't trust it. It'd be like saying, look at Bertie Madoff as a financial advisor. Look at how, how terrible that is. And then later on, he talks about why you shouldn't have anybody as a financial advisor because, you know, he uses this as his example. So I'm a little bit disappointed in how he uses this in uh, this dialogue. Mm -hmm. And fair enough. I mean, Socrates uh, does always... I guess Socrates can always be read as prejudging things, although I think he's trying hard not to be seen to be prejudging here. Uh, but, you know, I guess we can read between the lines and know where he's going because we know the character of Socrates. He says here, for example, at the end of that first reading that I did, you obviously have no idea what a sophist is. Maybe he's not saying that Protagoras is bad in that, but at least that we need to know what we're going towards. He certainly isn't extolling the the virtues or the or, or the powers of Protagoras, um, but he's certainly setting it up to be questioned. So yeah, I guess we do have to be a little cautious of Socrates too. And let's see what Socrates' own view about caution towards himself is as the dialogue develops. I think that's a good point. It's something that we need to be aware of. You know, if Socrates is not keen on the sophists, then is the wisdom of Socrates necessarily correct? Something that we should definitely be uh, careful of. Which actually leads me into the next part of this first part of the reading that I thought I would do, this whole theme of becoming a knowledgeable consumer of knowledge. Uh, and this is where Protagoras himself expresses caution or the need for caution. And this was a really interesting thing. And maybe by presenting this here, this is from 316D to 317C, maybe by presenting this here, Socrates is trying to add some fairness to the presentation of Protagoras. And so here he has Protagoras 
expressing some caution about going to Sophus. You know, so Protagoras here presents himself as the only honest broker of knowledge among all the Sophists. And, and so Protagoras is offering a warning himself. So maybe I'll just read this. If, uh, if you like, I'll try again my, my dramatic presentation. So this is Protagoras speaking. Your discretion on my behalf is appropriate, Socrates. Caution is in order for a foreigner who goes into the great cities and tries to persuade the best of the young men in them to abandon their associations with others, relatives and acquaintances, young and old alike, and to associate with him instead on the grounds that they will be improved by this association. Jealousy, hostility, and intrigue on a large scale are aroused by such activity. Now, I maintain that a sophist art is an ancient one, but that the men who practice it in ancient times, fearing the odium attached to it, disguised it, masking it sometimes as poetry, as Homer and Hesiod and Simonides did, or as mystery, religions, and prophecy, witness Orpheus and Musaeus. And occasionally I've noticed, even as athletics, as with Icus of Tarentum and in our own time, Herodicus of Salimbria, originally of Megara, as great as sophist as any. Your own Agathocles, a great sophist, used music as a front, as did Pythocles of Sios and many others. All of them, as I say, use these various arts as secrets out of fear of ill will. And this is where I part company with them all, for I do not believe that they accomplished their end. I believe they failed, in fact, to conceal from the powerful men in their cities the true purpose of their disguises. The masses, needless to say, perceive nothing, but merely sing the tune their leaders announce. Now, for a runaway to succeed in running away, but to be caught in the open is sheer folly from the start and inevitably makes men even more hostile than they were before. For on top of everything else, they perceive him as a real rogue. So I have come down the completely opposite road. I admit that I am a sophist and that I educate men, and I consider this admission to be a better precaution than denial. And I have given thought to other precautions as well, so as to avoid, God willing, suffering any ill from admitting that I am a sophist. I have been in the profession many years now, and I'm old enough to be the father of any of you here. So, if you do have a request, it would give me the greatest pleasure, by far, to deliver my lecture in the presence of everyone in this house. Socrates then provides his own narrative, says, It looked to me that he wanted to show off in front of Prodicus and Hippias, and to bask in glory because we had come as his admirers. So I said, well, why don't we call Prodicus and Hippias over, and their companions, so that they can listen to us? So I wonder what we think about that section and the warning that Protagoras himself provides, the warning that that other sophists can try to mask their sophistry in music or athletics, in art, in any of that. And, and he himself is not trying to hide any of that. He's, he's actually being upfront. He is saying, I'm a sophist. I'm proud of it. I know what a sophist, what a real sophist does. I have nothing to hide. And maybe that's fair, right? He's not trying to hide anything. People can make their choice whether to spend their money on him or not. There's a few things I found a little bit concerning in this. And I've underlined the two sections in particular, I think, that lead to some concern in my mind. And I'm just wondering what you think of this. So he says, you know, they these other sophists use these various arts as secrets out of fear of ill will. So that's the idea of hiding things. And then I thought particularly concerning was this section here where Protagoras says, the masses, needless to say, perceive nothing, but merely sing the tune their leaders announce. I'm wondering if Protagoras really understands what the implications of that statement are. 
in terms of if the masses perceive nothing when he teaches people, do his students perceive nothing? And do they sing the tune that Protagoras announces? Maybe there's a danger in there that, that he's not acknowledging he's saying it, but does he really appreciate what he's saying? Steve, and then Nuria. Steve. Yeah, I mean, this is, sounds to go along with Plato's general beliefs as, as I've come to understand them, that he's anti-democratic. So it would be, you know, again, seeing that it's Plato that's putting these words into uh, this character. It's a character that he's relaying to us, putting forth these, these ideas that the masses can't be trusted with the knowledge. So again, I go back to he's setting this person up or the sophist or sophistry as a straw man to show why uh, virtue can't be taught. But uh, I think this, to me, it, it goes along from what, what my understanding of Plato is that he's uh, anti-democratic. Well, let's not say anti-democratic, but if he had to pick his versions of in, in his utopia, what type of government there would be, uh, democracy definitely wouldn't be in the, uh, the top three. That's a good observation, and we're not even really sure what he would choose among all of the options. Certainly in the Republic, he went through a number of different forms of government and found problems with all of them, except the the government by the uh, philosopher King, which he admits it's almost impossible to bring into existence. Uh, so what does that leave us with? Um, but you're right. I mean, he's he's definitely presenting the idea that there are problems when the masses get together. They may not perceive the important things. They may just listen to the loudest, uh, the most popular things. And certainly that idea of accepting the popular notion is something that comes up in here and something that we need to be careful of. So it's a good observation. And now, you know, mind you, this isn't Socrates saying this. This is uh, Protagoras himself saying this. The masses, needless to say, perceive nothing but merely sing the tune their leaders announce. So maybe then the question is, do other sophists take this kind of approach that the masses themselves are inherently unwise and that it's the sophist's role, therefore, to raise the masses out of this ignorance? Maybe there is something in that in terms of how sophists in general approach the masses. But if this is just Socrates prejudging sophists and sophists don't approach the masses that way, then maybe there is a problem with the dialogue. So. Definitely something to think about, but uh, I can I can certainly think of some sophists, some modern sophists who take this view. It's very clear in what they say that they think the masses uh, merely sing the the tune their leaders announce. Uh, but maybe not all sophists do that. So it's maybe unfair to paint all sophists with the same brush in that sense. So thanks for that, and we'll go to Nuria. So I think that. I don't know if Tyros is aware of that, but I think if he's not, maybe because I feel he's to focus with being persuasive. And since he thinks persuading people of his arguments is like his goal, like he wants to convince people, maybe he doesn't see it necessarily as, oh, this is boring, this is bad. And an example of this is what we see in this dialogue later about how Protagoras makes a really long speech and basically Socrates tells him like that speech is so long that you cannot argue, you cannot follow it and you cannot remember all the points made and counter them because you have 
throw so much and that is part of what causes people to not be able to analyze it and merely say the last thing you said sounds good so i think if he's not conscious it's partially because how his rhetoric is too long for people to remember that's a really good point and an interesting point that you make there, especially, I actually put a footnote on this one sentence. It goes on for about six lines here. It's this part here that I'm just highlighting on the screen. This is where Protagoras is saying, now I maintain that a sophist art is an ancient one, but the men who practice it in ancient times, fearing the odium, and then he goes on to talk about different sophists. And this is all one sentence. This is a great long run-on sentence. So that struck me, you know, as you said, you know, Socrates later calls out, that Protagoras is long-winded. And exactly as you say, that when we get into this long-winded presentation, we, we can only keep so many things in our minds before we start losing the key thread of it. And so maybe this is part of the art of persuasion of a sophist is to be long-winded so that people really forget all of what they're saying or, or part of what they're saying, and maybe just focus on the last thing that they're saying. So uh, it's an interesting observation, but certainly Socrates calls out this long-windedness and, and we'll see it in, in a little bit, uh, where as a condition of proceeding, Socrates says, you must not be long-winded or else I'll leave. So uh, he's, I guess he's trying to put himself on the same ground as, as uh, Protagoras on that. So a good point. Uh, and as you said, if the job of the sophist is to be persuasive, well, maybe, you know, as Steve said at the outset, that's maybe a necessary skill in a city like Athens. Just each person is going to be in the assembly. And if you're not persuasive, you're not going to get your view across and government will go on without your your opinions. So being persuasive is certainly important then as it is now. I mean, we have all this technology around us. Everybody's broadcasting their opinions. Maybe we need to learn to be persuasive about our opinions, but then we also need to be knowledgeable consumers about others' opinions. So maybe this is still a, this is an ancient problem that is still a modern problem. And so always, I think, find the relevance in, in Plato to modern times here, 2,400 years later. So thanks for that. And uh, we'll go to Adam. Uh, I just have a question. So I, f I forget what, what actor said this or what comedian said this. He said something along the lines of you have to um, hide truth telling in comedy, make them laugh. Uh, otherwise, they'll kill you or, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do away with you. Is that what Protagoras is saying, is that sophistry is an ancient art of telling the truth, and many of them uh, hide the truth in veils of whatever various arts he said, or secrets, because they know that they'll get ill will if they'll tell the truth. And so he's basically saying, we're all truth tellers, uh, but I don't even hide it. I just directly say it. Is is, is that what he's, is, is that his argument? Is that what he's, say, he's saying here? Positioning himself as a truth as a, a direct truth teller, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think you put that well. I mean, that's the way I read it. Uh, is that um, you know sometimes the truth can be hard, and and if you deliver the truth to somebody and they don't like it, uh, then there could be a rather violent reaction, especially if you're a foreigner arriving in a city as Protagoras has done, and you know as he as he's warned here, the sophist arrives and jealousy, hostility, and intrigue happen when the sophist tries to get the people in the city to abandon their relatives and acquaintances, young and old alike, and to associate with the sophist on the grounds that they will be improved by this association. So the foreigner comes into the city, 
takes away the bonds that, that exist between people and tries to teach people new things, and that can engender jealousy, hostility, and intrigue. You know, we probably find that in our own lives. If some stranger barges in and tells me that I'm doing things incorrectly, I will not react favorably to that stranger. Um, maybe that's just a natural human reaction. Thinking what you said actually makes me think about the Republic and the prisoner in the cave who, when allowed to escape from the cave, or when he escapes from the cave and is forced back uh, into the cave with the knowledge, having attained the knowledge after he escaped from the cave, the knowledge of the light, and he comes back into the cave, it's said that the cave dwellers might want to kill him for telling them the truth because they're actually so used to looking at these images on the wall and thinking that the reality of this, somebody comes back and says, no, I, I've seen all, all of this is wrong. What you're seeing is all wrong. You need to change your thinking. Then it's actually says in, in the Republic, you know, they, they could actually kill him for that. So, yeah, I, th I think you, you raise a good point there. It's, it's definitely something that is a danger. And so that's why Protagoras is saying that these other sophists have tried to you know, embed their sophistry in these other arts and hope that it somehow sinks in. But Protagoras, he's, you know, he's being honest. He's not doing that. He's being forthright about it. And he's saying that he's an honest broker of knowledge. Um, he's not hiding anything. So hopefully that answers your question. All right. Well, thank you for that. So this risk, I guess, that the masses may may react or pick up on points that are particularly popular. Maybe again, this is something that we see with social media now, you know, that we're all chasing after the like button and the more likes we get, the more popular we think we are. And so some opinions get promoted that are particularly inflammatory or reactive, which may not have had the benefit of that second opinion or that sober second thought. It just becomes whatever is the most has the most emotional appeal uh, appeal maybe, and that's maybe where the mass reaction can cause some problems. And so again, this idea of having or or, or needing to examine, uh, needing to examine. It's not necessarily dismissing what's said, but to stop and examine first. I think that's maybe the key here. So there are definitely some good points I think though that Protagoras raises here, and. Certainly, he's not trying to cover anything up, and he's presenting this caution. So Socrates has presented a caution, and Protagoras has presented a caution. So I think, you know, maybe they're on some sort of even ground here at the beginning. Well, let's go to the second part here. So here, what I wanted to do was to present Socrates' opinion first, and then the end of today's reading ends with Protagoras's argument. So I thought we could maybe just compare these two arguments, and this will set us up for, for two weeks when we go into the next session section of the Protagoras. So I'll read this part here. This is where Socrates is giving the view that virtue can't be transmitted between people. It's something that's that's kind of there. It, it's not something that we can pick up. You know, somebody provides me a lesson and I become virtuous as a result of it. So I, that that's his opinion that he'll he'll say here. So this is from three nineteen b to three twenty b. And Socrates saying, "Well, this is truly an admirable technique that you have developed. If indeed you have, there is no point in my saying to you anything other than exactly what I think. The truth is, Protagoras, 
I have never thought that this could be taught. But when you say it can be, I can't very well doubt it. It's only right that I explain where I got the idea that this is not teachable, not something that can be imparted from one human being to another. I maintain, along with the rest of the Greek world, that the Athenians are wise. And I observe that when we convene in the assembly and the city has to take some action on a building project, we send for builders to advise us. If it has to do with the construction of ships, we send for shipwrights, and so forth for everything that is considered learnable and teachable. But if anyone else, a person not regarded as a craftsman, tries to advise them, no matter how handsome and rich and well-born he might be, they just don't accept him. They laugh at him and shut him down until he either gives up trying to speak and steps down himself, or the archer police remove him forcibly by order of the board. This is how they proceed in matters which they consider technical. But when it is a matter of deliberating on city management, anyone can stand up and advise them. Carpenter, blacksmith, shoemaker, merchant, ship captain, rich man, poor man, well-born, low-born, it doesn't matter. And nobody blasts him for presuming to give counsel without any prior training under a teacher. The reason for this is clear. They do not think that this can be taught. Public life aside, the same principle holds also in private life, where the wisest and best of our citizens are unable to transmit to others the virtues that they possess. Look at Pericles, the father of these young men here. He gave them a superb education in everything that teachers can teach. But as for what he himself is really wise in, he neither teaches them that himself, nor has anyone else teach them either. And his sons have to browse like stray sacred cattle and pick up virtue on their own wherever they may find it. Take a good look at Clinius, the younger brother of Alcibiades here. When Pericles became his guardian, he was afraid that he would be corrupted, no less by Alcibiades. So he separated them and placed Clinius in Aerophon's house and tried to educate him there. Six months later, he gave him back to Alcibiades because he couldn't do anything with him. I could mention a great many more, men who are good themselves but who have never succeeded in making anyone else better, whether family member or total strangers. Looking at these things, Protagoras, I just don't think that virtue can be taught. But when I hear what you have to say, I waver. I think there must be something in what you are talking about. I consider you to be a person of enormous experience who has learned much from others and thought through a great many things for himself. So if you can clarify for us how virtue is teachable, please don't begrudge us your explanation. So this is an interesting section. There's a bunch of things that Socrates brings into his argument here. I think there's the, the argument about the Athenian democracy. You know, Steve, you, you raised that point, and maybe we can explore that. The argument that when the assembly in Athens wants something technical done that, that involves a particular technical craft or skill, such as shipbuilding or whatever, they, they invite people who have been taught in that particular trade. And, you know, they would run anybody else out if, you know, somebody, if they needed somebody to repair a ship, they wouldn't go to an artist to repair a ship, they would go to a shipwright. So that seems logical. You, you go to somebody who is being taught in that particular craft. But then he says that when it comes to debating in the assembly, that particular thing, anybody can participate in that. That doesn't require teaching. In fact, that's the way the system has been set up. And that's the way our system is set up, isn't it, in, in modern democracies? There, there's no education requirement for anybody running for office. And we don't we wouldn't accept any requirement, would we? Or if we did, would we still call it a democracy? I thought that was an interesting point. And then he goes on to talk about how the great Pericles, virtuous as everybody thinks he is, 
was unable to impart his virtue on his children and on on the rest of the people. So this is kind of his example is the kind of two reasons why he thinks that virtue can't be taught. Steve, your thoughts? Yeah, I have a difficult time with Socrates's point here also because uh, you know, in a of course, in a democracy, we want in our democracies that we have now. That's not the case in uh, Athens, of course, when they said anyone can stand up and advise them. Of course, women and slaves couldn't get up and advise. You know, they wouldn't be allowed to offer their advice. So in any case, the what we what we want in a person that we're going to elect to represent us in a representational government like we have is you want somebody that has skills. You know, you don't want... You know, you don't want somebody who has no skills in, in governing and doing the things that are necessary. It's very, it's very, you know, to pass uh, legislation that spends billions of dollars, you want to have people that, you know, know what they're doing. So, you know, there's no prerequisite that you have to have a law degree or you have to have a, you know, an engineering degree. But, you know, when you're People are going out and running for office. In most cases, the idea is that you want somebody that's more experienced. And just the idea, the way you're saying that virtue can't be taught, just that this makes no sense at all. It's like to me that how does anyone become virtuous? It's just, it sounds like he's saying you're either born virtuous or you're not. If you're not, you know, you had those bad kids, we moved them from one house to the other, and we just couldn't, we couldn't get them to be virtuous, you know? And it's like, I, you know, completely disagree with that. I think that the only way that children grow up to be virtuous people is by the uh, the values that are they're taught by by their parents and the rest of the society. So I'm on completely the opposite side of Socrates on this, that virtue can't be taught. I think that's the opposite, that virtue has to be taught in order for someone to be virtuous. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And and I think that then again brings us back to the question though of who is who is qualified to teach virtue. Uh, I guess that would be the question that we started with in that, in that first reading. Certainly some teaching is beneficial. I don't think anybody would argue with that, but maybe it's a question of continuously teaching other each other, maybe. But the question that you raise, how do we become virtuous? Is it by chance of birth? That's something that we hope to avoid, I would think. And let's watch Socrates closely to see whether he thinks that that's the case, whether it's uh, by chance of birth or not. Or maybe maybe we are each born with virtue in us. This is this is the way I'm seeing it. Maybe we're each born with virtue in us, and we just need to bring that out. So we each have the equal opportunity of virtue. So maybe that's another interpretation. So Socrates hasn't elaborated on that yet. So let, let's see which way he goes, but let's be cautious, as you say, about uh, that question, how do we become virtuous? As to wanting skilled people in government, yeah, I would say you and I would, for sure. But I think maybe if we scan the modern world now and what has become of democracies, uh, and I won't name names, but uh, there are clearly some unqualified, unknowledgeable people who have attained office and who celebrate their lack of knowledge and who gather great masses of people behind them in this celebration of lack of knowledge. 
Uh, so as I said, I won't name names. I wouldn't encourage naming, naming names, but I think we can see a few examples of that in, in recent history. So something to be uh, aware of always, but certainly, you know, I think the educated people such as ourselves would want also educated people running government. So it's just a question of how that comes to be. So thank you for those points. I, I think definitely things that we need to be aware of. So we'll go to Adam and then Jose and then Eva. Uh, I have two parts, a, a comment and then a question. I hate to ring the same bell, but regarding anti-intellectualism or anti-expertism, you were talking about in a democracy and uh, teaching virtue. What he's saying seems to apply to the, the question um, America is having now when it comes to ethical virtue questions in healthcare over what we just uh, the 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 world just had with covid and 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 with how should we defer to experts uh, or should we do do we need to be an expert to have opinions on ethical questions within medicine and also in um education there's there's a lot of questions about ethics and what we teach in the education the public education system and the university education system and People, some people are saying, well, you need to trust the experts. Do you have a degree in education? Should you be having an opinion on this? But then other people are saying, I don't need to have an education. Uh, virtue, knowing virtue, knowing what's right and wrong is in a, a possession of all people that should be allowed to speak up and have an opinion and have a say in how the public education system runs or how the healthcare system runs. And so... Socrates here is, in a way, taking the what would be positioned as the anti-intellectual position, the anti-expertism pictures, and we all have have that. And that's, again, is, is astounding to me. But my question on a different note is, it's been a long time since I read The Republic, and I don't remember if it was Socrates that was talking the whole time in The Republic, but didn't he advocate that the ruling class should be isolated and educated directly in virtue and knowledge and and wisdom and and not be shown anything uh, right or bad and like didn't didn't that didn't he literally say that uh, virtue was, would be taught to the ruling class in the republic and that's a question I don't know I'm asking. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking that question because when <clears throat> we covered the republic in six episodes, I found that to be a common perception of the Republic that Socrates is advocating for the guardian class system in which the these guardians would be taken away, trained in virtue, and prevented from doing certain things, prevented from being corrupted so that they could then run the city. That is later disabused by Socrates. Uh, so that comes up right near the beginning of the Republic. And Socrates says that because uh, I think it was uh, it was either Adamantus or Glaucon who proposed that they construct a city in a fever and the city that was therefore incapable of seeing its own reason. It was just it was a one brief line and then Socrates becomes uncharacteristically accepting of what they say from that point on. He stops challenging them. They build this city in a fever and he says, well, you know, if we're going to give people all this wealth, then we'll need this guardian class because they won't be able to control themselves with this wealth. But I think the key point in the Republic is near the end where he presents the allegory of the cave. So why would he say at the beginning that we should be subject to these guardians who are uh, you know, supposed to keep truth from us and 
to be somehow educated, although the choice of their teachers is unclear. Who's qualified to guard the guardians? That's unclear. So then he presents the allegory of the cave to say, should we subject ourselves to these men on the parapet, shining these images on the wall? So, you know, the the guardians are these people who have been trained only to look at these images on the wall, not to look at the truth, right? To keep this city in a fever under control, to keep the lid from boiling over on the pot. So I think that's that's a common, I find it to be a misperception of the Republic. I don't think the allegory of the cave it just totally does not fit with with that perception, I think. So that's how I would answer that question. But I think there might be a fair bit of contention in that, but that's my considered view of the Republic. Certainly, I think that the point that you brought about the reaction to COVID, I think was an excellent point that we need to consider because there was a case where I don't think really any credible medical professional would have said that we shouldn't have the vaccinations. And yet there was masses of people who developed a belief under the persuasion, I think, of some very powerful sophists, some of whom run talk shows on very well-watched networks, under the persuasion of these sophists who receive a great amount of money for their so-called teaching, people became very violently reactive against having the vaccines. And in, in my country, in Canada, our capital city was shut down for almost three weeks because it was occupied by people who simply would not accept the view that there should be any sort of public health measures to constrain the spread of this virus that was killing millions of people across the world. So I, I thank you for raising that example. I think that's a that's a great example of of this risk of of the masses not perceiving things if if certain shiny objects are put in front of them and they think that it's knowledge. I think that's a great example. Uh, you know, and also, also what you said about schools and in, in terms of what education should be happening in schools and what knowledge is allowed to be transmitted in schools. There's increasing numbers of schools now that are considering banning certain books because they think that some books are dangerous for kids. This trend didn't used to happen and it's becoming more and more prevalent now. And so we have to then question, well, who's making these decisions about which books are dangerous and which books aren't? Are these educated decisions or emotional decisions? So thanks for raising that point as well. We'll go to Jose, Eva, and then JK. Jose. Yes, I want, yes, a couple of comments about uh, Steve's uh, question about uh, this part of the dialogue. That uh, there is another dialogue, uh, Mino, that we covered as well, but I don't think we completed. That uh, the main theme of the of the dialogue is, is virtue, is teachable, and at the end it is is it does in Laporia, so didn't answer. And this is strange because this protagonist is supposed to be. Previous, this is supposed to be one of the early dialogues of Plato, and, and Mino is supposed to be middle. But uh, I don't know, this is strange. And another thing that they wanted to comment is just a spoiler that at the end of this dialogue, the Protagoras, Socrates changed 180 degrees disposition. So it starts with Protagoras saying that virtue can be teachable, and Socrates said no, and at the end is the reverse. So this is a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, definitely, and and we'll see we'll see some reversals. Uh, I think we'll maybe see a bit more color to that, uh, a bit more depth to that. What you just said, but definitely we'll see a, a change in their approach during the dialogue. So thank you for that, and certainly calling the the Mino, which is 
also in the question of whether virtue can be taught is is an important one to raise here because we might have cause to refer to the Mino as we go through the Protagoras. I don't think there is actually any definitive list of which order Plato's dialogues were written in. So I don't know whether the Mino came before or after the Protagoras. I just find great consistency through all of Plato's dialogues. I don't see any change in his approach through time. I think one dialogue seems to be, to me, to be very consistent to the next. So I think we might find parallels uh, in here with the Mino. So thanks for that. And we'll go to Eva. Thank you. Well, I don't think he means that virtue is unteachable. I think it's an open window. Just because some people want to teach virtue under the name of their own values, that won't happen. I think there is that. So because he says like, well, they will go and find virtue somewhere. So virtue will happen in its own process, I guess. I am a coach and I work with families and uh, there were many cases, just an example, like a family, both father and mother is lawyers and they want me to coach their child on becoming a lawyer. And at a case like this, you don't coach the child, you child, you coach the parents on just because they are great lawyers and they believe like saving the earth is the way to be lawyers. It doesn't mean that their child has to be lawyers. So the family has the authority here. They have the power, but they have to understand that they can only suggest. So virtue could be suggested, but a person can always find a way to be their own selves at a level. So this was in the family level. But if you want to go with when things happen economically, money will be there. And some people will be charging for their services. And some people will just want to not pay for the services. I think the way he is brainstorming around here is... You have to find your own way. Sometimes services should be free or sometimes you may you give a discount if you feel like you want to, but sometimes you have to really charge for your services too to give the best value to the service and its purpose. I think it's the same with virtue here. So there's always a space for a person to find their own selves but just because some people or governments or leaders, community or even religious leaders that believe that this is the best virtue and I want everyone to have that virtue so it will be a peaceful world, I don't think it happens that way. I think we see examples of what you just said, that there's some views maybe of some religious or people who claim to be religious, for example, that seem to actually conflict with the religion that they claim to belong to. And so they profess a virtue, but maybe that's just window dressing for something that's actually maybe the opposite. Your example of uh, parents coaching you to coach children, I thought was really interesting. It made me think of what Jose said earlier about the unexamined life. And so you do want to provide direction to children, obviously, but you want I think to leave them room to examine their life when they're at a point where they've 
develop sufficiently and develop some maturity that they're able to examine their life. But to coach a coach to kind of channel the child into one particular profession at such an early age, I guess that could be a little damaging maybe to all sorts of other potential that that child might have. And so I thought that might be a good analogy for the sophists, you know, to the extent that somebody who themselves has a lot of education listening to a sophist can maybe judge for themselves people with maybe less education, maybe the so-called masses that uh, Protagoras referred to, maybe those who don't have the benefit of as much education are more likely to fall susceptible to that type of thing. And so you have to be very careful, again, to be a knowledgeable consumer of these things. James, I want to I remark one thing. I don't want to put the belief systems or the concept of religion at like a controlling manner. I think the original early practices of each religion has great examples of like how you cannot teach virtue you have to let people go on their own path and the best example for that is the flood and noah's son in the metaphoric way like he begged him to believe and be saved and he said no i think that is a great freedom choice of freedom so-called a prophet can trust he was upset he was sorry he missed his son blah 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 but he trusts the process in a divine way i say i don't like passing through the belief systems directly because some people are uh, using it in an awful way i think it's Maybe it's the virtue, again, mm-hmm. understanding on what you want to believe or really see the original stories and do not get lost at the current, the sophists, maybe, wrong sophists. Yeah, thank you. Very, very well said and, and a very good, I think, warning not to delve too deeply into belief systems because there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of difficulty getting into there making and generating some sort of common ground of understanding, I think, which is important. Let's maybe think of some other examples too. I think that the example that you offered of a original religious teaching about virtue, I thought was very interesting. Maybe we can find more examples as we go on with the dialogue. And also, I think you talked about, or you referred to, or made us think about the original cause of virtue, which is, I think, something that this dialogue is pursuing. And and I think that's what Socrates is going to do with this dialectical process that we'll see in two weeks, is look for the first principles of virtue, which is what dialectic is. It's looking for the first principles. And so there they're looking, I think, for the original cause of virtue, which is interesting to see if they'll find that. So thank you for that. And uh, we'll go to JK. Yeah, talking about how uh, kids are, how they acquire virtue or how they um, become who they are. I mean, it's pretty much um, a given fact that uh, it's the culture, it's the parents. The parents want their you know children to become gymnasts. Um, they put the kids into training at a very young age when the child has not made a choice for themselves. But it's what the parents want their kids to do, right? And so... You know, where's the free will there? And the free will doesn't come until much later for the child, I guess. And maybe even then. So, uh, and the values are already inculcated into the child. So 
there's an importance of um, education where the uh, education that can teach the child to make choices on their own, at the same time, uh, be able to absorb the right kind of values. But look how many parents put their kids in religious schools as opposed to public schools, right? If they can afford it, they put in, them into private schools where they, it's the parents who decide what the child is going to learn. Mm-hmm. But then the, the overall culture is also what is very determining in the kind of virtues that the child is going to uh, absorb, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to live with uh, for the rest of their lives. So um, I guess in, in our modern education, there's, there's a kind of um, a dismissal of philosophy as a kind of a serious um, part of education. It's all science and other activities and not even considering that uh, there's certain ideologies that you can choose from, right? I mean, you don't, you know, very few schools are teaching in the ideologies of socialism in our capitalist system, right? So, you know, uh, where, where are the virtues, the real virtues, right, that uh, people can acquire outside of those uh, cultural ideologies, depending on which culture you're living in? Yeah, you, you raised a number of really interesting points there. You mentioned, again, the the fact that there is a lot of teaching now in the kind of technical areas, you know, where what's called STEM, I guess. Basically, the technical sorts of learning that seems to be very much preferred, I think, now these days. And maybe this is a case of parents kind of channeling their children into that because, you know, and this is kind of what Socrates is saying here. In this part that I have underlined, this is how they proceed in matters which they consider technical. Here we was talking about the Athenian assembly having a particular technical problem to resolve, like building a ship. They go to somebody with that technical knowledge. But when you are dealing with knowledge that is not specifically technical with a right and necessarily a right and a wrong, uh, and you're dealing with more broad, open-ended knowledge like social virtues and and the ability to work in a society, that's the more difficult thing that, as you say, I think that's been maybe less emphasized now. Uh, you also mentioned, I think, the idea of teaching children to make choices. Uh, and I think that's a really important point. Maybe it's more a question of teaching the process of how to make a choice rather than teaching them the choices that they should make, uh, but just making sure that they're well-equipped to make the choice when they've been exposed to different types of knowledge. There I just, as you were as you were talking, I remembered when I was a child, my parents forced me to take piano lessons and I really didn't like that as a child. It just wasn't something that was me. Now I wish I had kept up with it, but I, uh, as soon as I was allowed to, I, I dropped it. So, you know, but that's an example where I don't think my parents were wanting me to become a pianist. It was just to expose me to that. And I'm glad that I was exposed to that, even though at the time I, I rebelled against it. So there's, I guess, a difference between exposing a child to knowledge and forcing a child to go a particular way with knowledge. So I thought that was a very helpful and useful point. So thank you. And we'll go to Fernando and then Steve and Eva. Yeah, uh, JK's point actually kind of uh, reminded me of the last passage that you read in terms of the food container, right? And in terms of where that decision happens, because, you know, behavioral uh, sciences, right, behavioral economy now kind of points to the real decision being at the store, right, before you bring it home. So it's essentially, you know, it, it got me to thinking to JK's point, essentially, where's that underlying structure, right? And we get into this very live debate of how much uh, freedom it's within the individual to actually go ahead and change these things when, you know, our language and our systems are already kind of like preloaded to a certain extent. 
And then on, on our current passage, a very surprising passage all around, right? One that he kind of defaults to, to Athens, kind of defaults to the masses, to the hoi poi to a certain extent. Uh, and then the other kind of shocking thing that seems to kind of defeat his, uh, essentially his whole Socrates being Socrates thing of going around talking to people about this stuff. You know, I haven't complete, read, read this dialogue before to Jose's kind of spoiler, right? I, you know, I was already trying to like wonder how he goes about resolving this, right? Because that seems to be the only thing that he wants to talk about. But it's almost kind of, I'm, I'm thinking kind of in contemporary terms, right? How often it comes up that in any how to get better book for anything, right? They're literally for anything, literally from how, how to be a better person to, you know, how to be a better golfer. It's always kind of loaded around all these different things that are how to become a better person. And it, it makes me think, one, how all these things are often kind of like tied together, right? So to be better at one thing, it seems it almost like leads into Socrates' point that it's all kind of a single virtue, right? That there aren't kind of like individual virtues that can be teased out. And then uh, James, to, to your point, which, which is kind of how I started to wonder how he goes about resolving this, to your point about the connection to the Mino. And I'm guessing that, that his other, you know, super famous analogy about being a midwife is kind of playing into it. And that aspect that we all may have a share in, within virtue, right? And the, the kind of the life coachy aspect to it, which you kind of emphasize with your parents' uh, example, right, is to facilitate folks to discover those inner virtues. Good observations. And you know, you mentioned the modern economy where we're almost forced to make the choice in the store. We don't get to bring the thing home and inspect the food and then call in experts and decide if we're going to eat it or not and return it. Sometimes that's difficult, but maybe our economic structure is very different from what it was in Socrates' days. And, that, and that's maybe what we some of the difficulty we have in relating to this idea of the sophist. Back in Socrates' day, Socrates didn't have to work. You know, He could go around and just ask questions all the time. And somehow we never figure out how Socrates actually manages to afford a house and afford all of these things. That's not really addressed. So maybe that's that's the practical side of life that we have to deal with now that makes it more difficult to spot these issues. But I think you kind of touched on that in, in what you said. So I appreciate that. Um, we'll go to Steve and then Eva. It uh, still seems to me that the major point in the dialogue is whether virtue can be taught or not. And regardless of how there might be a spoiler at the end for Socrates making a flip, it still seems like Plato's main theory is that virtue is one of the forms. It's, 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 it's there. But that just uh, when you look at the world and you look at Cultures, you know, if you compare different cultures like the Mongols in the uh, 12th century and the Asiatic Plains or hunter-gatherers in the early ages, like say 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, people in, a, in an agricultural situation, um, the Aztecs in the uh, South America, Central America, you know, there's different things that are considered virtuous. You know, it's all it's culture based and what or things that we consider today. And, you know, just even looking at the members of this dialogue, the aristocrats definitely would have been slave owners and there would have been virtuous behaviors on how you treat slaves. And that would have been, well, you beat them if, if they do something wrong, but you don't do it for 
sadistic pleasure. There might be, you know, that type of virtue. But, you know, those would be considered like that virtue is is a thing that is just stable and doesn't change. Whereas if you're a uh, on the Mongols, you know, there's a different virtues about, you know, how many people you kill and if you behead them and, you know, the things that you do when you are pillaging and raping, that those are considered virtuous uh, actions for yourself in that cultural environment. So the idea that virtue is a form of itself is really just hard to take. It just seems like it's more culturally, biologically um, determined by, you know, the situation that presents itself to whoever is in the position of being virtuous or not, and what how that virtue is defined. And that, that's a fair point, I think, is something that we need to understand what virtue is. I mean, it's one thing to talk about whether it's teachable, but let's understand what it is first. And I put on the cover page of today's notes that I have on the screen here, what is the thing we call virtue, which is, you, we'll see that Socrates and Protagoras explore that as the dialogue goes on, but I think it's it's good that you raised it. And you raise the question of whether virtue is a form. I'm not sure that We'll see Socrates say that virtue is a form, and maybe a bit more of a spoiler alert, maybe we'll see that he says virtue is actually a form of wisdom, and so maybe there's not a particular form of virtue. But definitely one of the questions that he asks in the upcoming section is whether virtue is one thing or whether it is many things. And I think Protagoras takes the view that it's many things, and we'll see some of the contradictions maybe that that causes. But I just would call attention to the quote here that I picked, which I thought was uh, an interesting one to maybe just recall. This is a, just a brief quote from the Cradlus, which we did back in the fall, 428A to B from the Cradlus, in which Socrates is talking about defining things, the words that we use to define things. So if we use a word virtue and we have a debate about it, as we're doing now, what do we mean by virtue? What are the limits of virtue? What's the beginning of virtue? What's the end of virtue? This thing that we call virtue, what is it? And so I just would remind the section of the Cradlus 425a to b, in which Socrates says, our job, if indeed we are to examine these things with scientific knowledge, is to divide where they put together, so as to see whether or not both the primary and derivative names are given in accord with nature. For any other way of connecting names to things, homogenies is inferior and unsystematic. We actually saw this approach, too, in the philobus that we just finished in three sessions, the need to do this continuous division until we're able to make a unity of things. So if we think that there is such a thing as virtue, what is the unity of the thing that we call virtue? So thank you for raising that. I thought that was a good way to work in this particular quote from uh, the Cradlus about the thing we call virtue. Um, Eva. Thank you. We have a nice conversation going on in the chat about schools and <laughs> what is their mission or what it should be. Well, I want to give a break to the families or parents who want to make sure they did a good parenting. And I understand the reason why families choose to send their children to either maybe religious or maybe I can say a cultural-based school because life is too risky and you want to make sure you did good parenting. And the thing, the first thing in the invisible backpack you have when you are parenting is 
your own culture. You don't go anywhere else. And not teaching anything about culture or belief system is even harder because you witness things. So I think it's either the school or your community or whatever parents are doing. I think it's important to set up a strong foundation, which is the first roots for a young person or a child. But those first roots, they don't define an adult, but it's just like what we need because we need something stable. Well, it could be in the future you can grow up and question that. I think that's the value families should be teaching. Uh, maybe something like, okay, we raised you in this way, but you can make your own choices. But this is what we got. So instead of not having main first roots, you can go and find or build your second roots. But this is what we had for you. And maybe that's the reason we were we are born into families or cultures that we didn't choose. But I think it's a relief that our first roots doesn't define us. Luckily, they don't define <laughs> us. So we're not limited to the structure we were born into. I think it's uh, important to understand the needs of either the community or the values or the culture while you are parenting. Because parenting is not easy and there's now no school for that. I wish there was a school for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah a, a good point. And I think there are those of us who benefited from great parents and those who didn't. But as you say, it's um, a question maybe of establishing the young on a path so that maybe they they can steer their own way and avoid dangers, but you leave them enough space to uh, to find their way um, with some encouragement towards finding knowledge. And I think, you know, that maybe takes me back to that comment in the first section that I read, where Socrates pointed out that Hippocrates didn't ask his father or his brother, or a single one of his friends to consider whether or not to entrust his soul to this recently arrived foreigner. And so I think he's just trying to point out that there's a danger. He's on a path, and there's a particular danger on the path. He's not telling Hippocrates what he should do. He's just telling there's a danger on the path. Watch out. So I think that maybe that uh, ties to what you just said. So thank you. Um, to give fair play to Protagoras's view, um, I just thought maybe I could read the section. I don't know if we'll have enough time for this. As always, we run short on time. We have about maybe 20 minutes left. But this is... Protagoras' response to Socrates, so from 321c to 323a. I'll try to be dramatic again when I read this. Uh, just a bit of background necessary before I read this. So here, this is the beginning of Protagoras. Protagoras tells, starts by telling a story. So at the beginning of his story, he talks about the gods' creation of living things inside the earth. So living things are created inside the earth, and then they're let loose uh, onto the earth. So Protagoras ref refers to Epimetheus, who, together with Prometheus, was said to have been charged with the provisioning of each of the living species and assigning to each its appropriate powers and abilities. Epimetheus begged Prometheus for the right to assign powers subject to Prometheus's later inspection. So Prometheus says, fine, go ahead. Anyway, so um, we'll see what happens to Epimetheus in the, in the story. So this is near the beginning of Protagoras's story. So he talks about Epimetheus, who was given the power to assign powers 
to the living things made a mistake, Protagoras says. But Epimetheus was not very wise, and he absentmindedly used up all the powers and abilities of the non-reasoning animals on the non-reasoning animals. He was left with the human race, completely unequipped. While he was floundering about at a loss, Prometheus arrived to inspect the distribution and saw that while the other animals were well provided with everything, the human race was naked, unshod, unbedded, and unarmed. And it was already the day on which all of them, human beings included, were destined to emerge from the earth into the light. It was then that Prometheus, desperate to find some means of survival for the human race, stole from Hephaestus and Athena wisdom in the practical arts, together with fire, without which this kind of wisdom is effectively useless, and gave them outright to the human race. The wisdom it acquired was for staying alive. Wisdom for living together in society, political wisdom it did not acquire, because that was in the keeping of Zeus. Prometheus no longer had free access to the high citadel that is the house of Zeus, and besides this, the guards there were terrifying. But he did sneak into the building that Athena and Hephaestus shared to practice their arts, and he gave them to the human race. And it is from this origin that the resources human beings needed to stay alive came into being. Later, the story goes, Prometheus was charged with theft, all on account of Epimetheus. So it's because some humans had a share of the divine dispensation that they alone among animals worshipped the gods, with whom they had a kind of kinship, and erected altars and sacred images. It wasn't long before they were articulating speech and words, and had invented houses, clothes, shoes, and blankets, and were nourished by food from the earth. Thus equipped, human beings at first lived in scattered isolation. There were no cities. They were being destroyed by wild beasts because they were weaker in every way. And although their technology was adequate to obtain food, it was deficient when it came to fighting wild animals. This was because they did not yet possess the art of politics, of which the art of war is a part. They did indeed try to band together and survive by founding cities. The outcome when they did so was that they wronged each other because they did not possess the art of politics, and so they would scatter and again be destroyed. Zeus was afraid that our whole race might be wiped out, so he sent Hermes to bring justice and a sense of shame to humans so that there would be order within cities and bonds of friendship to unite them. Hermes asked Zeus how we should distribute shame and justice to humans. Should I distribute them as the arts were? This is how the others were distributed. One person practicing the art of medicine suffices for many ordinary people, and so forth with all the other practitioners. Should I establish justice and shame among humans in this way, or distribute it to all? To all, said Zeus, and let all have a share, for cities would never come to be if only a few possessed these, as is the case with the arts. And establish this law as coming from me, death to him who cannot partake of shame and justice, for he is a pestilence to the city. And so it is, Socrates, that when Athenians, and others as well, are debating architectural excellence or the virtue proper to any professional specialty, they think that only a few individuals have the right to advise them, and they do not accept advice from anyone outside those select few. You've made this point yourself, and with good reason, I might add. But when the debate involves political excellence, which must proceed entirely from justice and temperance, they accept advice from anyone, and with good reason, for they think that this particular virtue, political or civic virtue, is shared by all, or there wouldn't be any cities. This must be the explanation for it, Socrates. So that was the speech by, or part of the speech by Protagoras. Um, and I think maybe a pretty compelling speech. And I wonder what we think about the various points that are made in here, Particularly, I think what struck me was the uh, the point about 
justice and shame, that we were all formed with the sense of justice and shame in us. And I don't know, I find maybe some truth in that. And so I'm not sure that Socrates is dismissing that, but I'm wondering how we take that. So here, Protagoras has acknowledged what Socrates said about the citizens of Athens are wise, and when they need a ship to be built, they go to a shipwright. He doesn't take exception with that. He agrees with that. But he says that because we are able to build cities, that's evidence that political or civic virtue is shared by all. Is the existence of these organized societies that we have evidence that there is virtue that is shared by all? If it's shared by all, then you know maybe the question we should ask Protagoras is who's entitled to teach it? So who has a bigger share of virtue? He hasn't gone there yet, but I think he's he's trying to lay the foundation that, that virtue is in all of us. So maybe it's not a form, but maybe it's just something that is there in all of us. Maybe it's just kind of an aspect of the soul, uh, which Socrates may wind up agreeing with. Adam, your thoughts? Uh, I have a question. Um, you you mentioned it's not a you maybe you said it maybe it's not a form, or one of you know Plato's ideals or you know some something some reality out there. Um, if it's not a form that he's alluding to that's out there, a reality of the universe, then what are you suggesting it is? What do you mean by maybe it's just something in us, but it's not a form? What do you? Uh, I don't I don't know if that if if you actually had like. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but like, uh, what what did you mean there? Yeah, that's a fair question. I appreciate it. I think the what really struck me about the forms was the sophist and the five key forms that are defined in the sophist by the visitor familia. Um, that which is change, rest, the same, and different. And if those are the five key forms, and virtue is something that's timeless, is virtue then changeable? Is virtue at rest? Is virtue in motion is virtue the same as virtue the different. So I think I see the forms as things that are capable of change, rest, the same and the different. Whereas virtue, I think that they're talking about here is something more permanent, something just timeless, perhaps an inherent feature of the soul. And so that it becomes a question of defining it and finding, so once you find the definition of what virtue is or agree on what the definition is, maybe maybe it's actually a requirement that there should be an agreement on what virtue is before it's even debated. And and here they they haven't really even debated what virtue is. Um, so question on that? Where can I find out more about this? You said change, rest. Uh... So these are the five key virtues yeah, that where... are defined in the sophist. Where's that at? Yeah, um, I don't have the section reference at hand, but if if you look up our sessions on the Sophist, uh, we had yeah we had three sessions on the Sophist and definitely covered that those five key virtues and that that for me was really transformational in the way I or sorry the five key forms and that was really transformational for me in terms of the way I saw forms or I understood forms so I would suggest that you're talking about the 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 Plato book sophist yeah the dialogue the sophist yeah dialogue exactly. so thank you yeah. i didn't yeah. uh, I, i'll give attention thank you yeah. very much yeah and and take a listen to our sessions on it it was really they were really good sessions i think so uh, hopefully they're they're helpful thank you yeah so thank you and jose 
Uh, well, I read somewhere that uh, there is kind of an, an agreement or most of the people think that Protagoras was uh, one of the early dialogues. So in the early dialogues, you present the point of view of Socrates. And later in the middle or late dialogues, usually is the point of view of Plato. And remember that uh, as far as I know in Socrates, he didn't have the idea of the forms. So he, you, we, we won't, you won't find in these dialogues any reference to the forms. So the definition has to be independent of the forms, but but there is still an idea that uh, that the definitions of this definition of especially justice is one definition and is is unchangeable. And uh, the the way that I understand is that there was a big thing of the Socrates and the and the Sophists that said Sophists they, they were relativists, so they think that everybody is entitled to his, his own opinion, and you can see in the Republic, for example. When they started the first book, the definition of justice, they have like five different definitions. And Tiramascus, the sophist, he has another one. But uh, Plato wants to, or Socrates wants to arrive to one conclusion. So that was, but uh, but here in this dialogue, I don't think we're going to find if it is a form or not. I, I agree. Yeah. And, and he doesn't, uh, as you point out, the, the forms are never defined. And maybe it is a question of, once you define them, you change them, maybe, you know, to go back to that kind of quantum observer effect that keeps coming up in our discussions. So, uh, yeah, he doesn't define, it's, the forms are never defined in Plato. Uh, we're, we're left wondering what they are. Uh, but I, I do find those, the five key forms that are specified in the sophist to be absolutely essential to understanding the concept, at least, of, of the forms. And, yeah, in terms of you know, the early dialogues versus the later dialogues. Um, certainly this one is, it's a really neat way that Socrates is recounting the whole thing as if he's presenting this whole scene as a play, which is kind of why I wanted to present this in a bit of a dramatic format. And certainly there's there's that aspect of it. You know, as to whether Plato ever expresses his own views, um, I think Plato famously said that he never expressed his own view we might read views into what he said, but I think he was very deliberately trying at least not to ever present his own views. So, but we can certainly uh, debate that. And I think Steve has pointed out some issues with maybe the way Socrates sometimes prejudges things. So you'll have to be careful about that. So, so thank you for raising those, uh, those points. I thought maybe in the, the short time that remains, I could just read this other piece here this is also what Protagoras says, and then maybe that will kind of take us to the end of the first section of the Protagoras and then get into the second part. So before I forget to mention it, I thought uh, next time we would cover, so this today we're stopping at 328D, so next time we could go from 328E to 348C, and that's kind of the dialectical exercise that they get into. Um, so... Maybe I'll just read this this part here from 326E to 328C to kind of take us to the end of today's reading. And so this is Protagoras again. When so much care and attention is paid to virtue, Socrates, both in public and private, are you still puzzled about virtue being teachable? The wonder would be if it were not teachable. When then do many sons of good fathers never amount to anything? I want you to understand this too. And in fact, it's no great wonder if what I've just been saying is true about virtue being something in which no one can be a layman if there is to be a city. 
For if what I'm saying is true, and nothing could be more true, pick any other pursuit or study and reflect upon it. Suppose, for instance, there could be no city unless we were all flute players, each to the best of his ability, and everybody were teaching everybody else this art in public and private and reprimanding the poor players and doing all of this unstintingly, just as now no one begrudges or conceals his expertise in what is just and lawful as he does his other professional ex expertise. For it is to our collective advantage that we each possess justice and virtue, and so we all gladly tell and teach each other what is just and lawful. Well, if we all had the same eagerness and generosity in teaching each other flute playing, do you think, Socrates, that the sons of good flute players would be more likely to be good flute players than the sons of poor flute players? I don't think so at all. When a son happened to be naturally disposed toward flute playing, he would progress and become famous. Otherwise, he would remain obscure. In many cases, the son of a good flute player would turn out to be a poor one, and the son of a poor player would turn out to be good. But as flute players, they would all turn out to be capable when compared with ordinary people who had never studied the flute. Likewise, you must regard the most unjust person ever reared in the human society under law as a paragon of justice compared with people lacking education in law courts and the pervasive pressure to cultivate virtue, savages such as the playwright Pharacrates brought on stage at last year's Linnaean festival. As it is, Socrates, you affect delicate sensibilities, because everyone here is a teacher of virtue to the best of his ability, and you can't see a single one. You might as well look for a teacher of Greek. You wouldn't find a single one of those either. Nor would you be any more successful if you asked who could teach the sons of our craftsmen the very arts which they, of course, learned from their fathers, to the extent that their fathers were competent, and their friends in their trade. It would be difficult to produce someone who could continue their education, whereas it would be easy to find a teacher for the totally unskilled. It is the same with virtue and everything else. If there is someone who is the least bit more advanced in virtue than themselves, he is to be cherished. So that was kind of the end of Protagoras' speech. Again, I think a very compelling speech, very well-spoken, uh, and he's addressing all of the points that Socrates raised, you know, the, the the question that Socrates raised about why Pericles couldn't impart his virtue on um, on his children and on the city, all of this is being addressed. And, you know, I think here there's an interesting thing that Protagoras does. He kind of places himself as a bit of a defender of the people when he says here in this part that I've underlined, uh, because everyone here is a teacher of virtue to the best of his ability, and you can't see a single one. So he's kind of maybe being a little bit of a populist there where he's uh, defending the ordinary person against the elitist Socrates. And so Socrates is relating this, you know, he's, he's not embarrassed to relate this. I thought that was an interesting, um, interesting section. So yeah, many things to consider in this. Uh, Steve, your thoughts. Just a question and maybe a comment after that, but is he saying when he's using the example of flute players that, is he saying that the that the children of flute players, of people that were already skilled flute players, is he saying that the children of the flute players would be more or less likely to be good flute players? Yeah, I think I think it may be this part here that I'm uh, highlighting on the screen. In many cases, the son of a good flute player would turn out to be a poor one, and the son of a poor player would turn out to be good. Right. Um, okay, so, but it seems yeah. like and if you look at, like, say, professional sports, you see that in, in many, many cases or the majority of cases that the 
players that end up being the the top players in sports around the world, their parents were either coaches or they were good athletes themselves, and they they started training uh, the person from an early age, and having that skill set of being, let's just say, uh, a, a woman soccer player, that somebody whose whose mother was played semi-pro uh, soccer, and the, there's a good chance that that child has a better opportunity of becoming a good soccer player because, you know, it's just part of our, of the life around the house. You're always kicking a soccer ball. Your mother's always teaching you how to, you know, do this thing. So I'm just saying it seems that the logical thing would be that, yes, some of the, the children of good athletes or, you know, whatever the case might be, wouldn't turn out. But you have a higher, you know, it seems in our own, ex, ex, you know, from your uh, quote at the beginning that you did for the beginning, that we need to, if we look at it experimentally, we would probably see that, you know, that the majority of that, that there is a definite advantage to having a parents that uh, are skilled in uh, what is being taught. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair observation. And what he's saying here, I think in this other part that I've highlighted, likewise, you must regard the most unjust person ever reared in a human society under law as a paragon of justice compared with people lacking education and law courts and the pervasive pressure to cultivate virtue. Savages such as the playwright Ferocrates brought on stage at last year's Linnaean Festival. I think what he's saying here is that we shouldn't necessarily just rely on the parents to teach virtue, that it's something that needs to be widely taught, uh, that if we just relied on the parents to teach virtue like they teach flute playing, well, you, you can't turn a child who's not into flute playing into a good flute player, no matter how good the parent is. Although, you know, maybe there's more likelihood that the child will become a flute player. But I think what he's saying here is that virtue is so important that it's something that should be taught or else they wind up as being savages. And so it, we really need to cultivate this, I think, is what he's saying. Um, so, yeah, but thank you. I, I think that helps to clarify the point that Protagoras is making. I, I find it's a very compelling point, actually. So, Eva, your thoughts? Yeah, James, just just like you said, Steve, thank you for that. Uh, I can remark the example of the actors, parent actors and their children, because they are all out there, because maybe they are cursed with the fact that we can really see them. And we knew uh, these young actors whose parents are actors. They We, we, we knew when, when they were born, we know how they grow up. But there's only the chance of being a good actor when your parents are good actors because you can mess up. It could even be a curse. So I think still there is the will and uh, the options and the time, blah, blah, blah. So you can have the best parent who does the best thing. But yeah, it's it. We don't know what that will turn into in the child's perspective, and I think that's a great thing because there are many people whose parents are not good at what they will be in time. So I I am glad that we don't become as our parents, and we people are just like you know, 
people can mess up or they can just build on what they got there from their, their parents. But there are people who who choose to not to be become their parents or become their own culture as they learn to be. I think that's all becoming and renewing, updating on who you are. So that's, I think that's a never ending story of parents and children and what happens. That's, that's a good observation. And uh, certainly I didn't turn out to be anything that I expected I would, or I think that my parents expected I would when I was a child. And, you know, I, I guess maybe they're grateful for it and I'm grateful for it. So um, you never know where life takes you. And the interesting thing about technology now, uh, it has a lot of problems, but one of the things that it is doing or is allowing to be done is to expose people to all sorts of different things that previously when they were isolated in just specific communities, they wouldn't necessarily see. And now the whole range of probabilities or potential is available for people to see. So I think that's maybe a good thing. And maybe that is where we can teach each other, but we do need to be careful and knowledgeable consumers, I guess, which is to go back to the warning that Socrates brings at the opening. So thanks for that. And we'll go to Fernando. Yeah, I mean, to to the point that you just made, I I, I do find interesting that th throughout uh, Protagoras, right, there's this presumed, um, I, I guess, hierarchy, assuming that cities are better, right? And I was, you know, besides it being Athens, I was kind of wondering what would be the case for that. And I, I think you kind of pointed to it, right, that in cities, you bring communities together and, and you can kind of like advance different arts and different techniques and, and whatnot, right? The shared wisdom that comes with being in the cities. My my idea was exactly, I, I think, where, where you're headed in terms of how that looks in modern day, right? Because, well, especially through the pandemic, right, as folks recognize that it was less imperative to live in a city, and as we recognize the, the wonderful advances that networking and technologies have done, so that that sort of, uh, I guess, like condensed living is no longer seems as necessary in order to kind of like advance uh, humanity, right? So th that jumped out, and then Steve's point also jumped out in terms of you know, the again, kind of the Protagoras point uh, seems to go counter to more or less kind of the modern message, right? Where it, it's not necessarily that their parents would facilitate the teaching, is that the parents provide those genes, right? The genetics to it. And that's especially true with, uh, well, I, the, the two analogies, right? Well, the one that Steve made to to athletes, but even with uh, with instrument players, right? That there's a dexterity that's gonna become along, that's gonna be inherited from the hands or from the, you know, from the mouth, from the, the various parts, along with perhaps a work ethic, right? And I, I just find that interesting that that seems to be loaded in now more or less is, is kind of coming more from genetics and then, you know, makes me think of a recollection and more something that can be developed and a little bit less something that can just be taught if if you don't have that already that range to be developed. Thanks. That that's an interesting perspective. And yeah, I think that's something that we can explore, I think, as as we go through this, whether there is that angle to teaching that you just spoke about. Um, and certainly what you said about how the pandemic has changed the way that we teach each other. I mean, it just makes me think, of course we're doing this podcast now and that would have never happened before the pandemic. We would have been restricted just meeting in person and it would be a lot less possible to talk to people across the world as we're doing here now. So 
that's that's a good thing i think um you know and we'll we'll explore that you know this idea of have our cities or our cities uh, you know in the abstract have they become wider because of technology now allowing us to do things like this so so thank you for raising that i think that was a, a very good point um we are unfortunately running out of time. Actually, we are out of time, um, but it, it has been a great discussion. Actually, I'm so glad we got through all of these readings. I, I wasn't sure whether we would. There's still a lot more to discuss on them, of course, so we can take it up in our next episode in two weeks. And so again, we'll be covering 328E to 348C. It's a bit of a more complex section with some dialectic and poetry, and so we'll have to just maybe focus a little bit on the words in the particular poems that they're talking about to see where Socrates is going with that line of argument. Uh, so we'll look at that and come back to some of these questions. And so some of the, I think, fascinating questions we've had today, whether virtue is a form, what is virtue? Uh, is virtue teachable? Do either Socrates or Protagoras demonstrate any sort of teachability of virtue? So we can look for all of these and and you know as as you just said fernando the the question of whether virtue exists in a city because both socrates and protagoras have used the city as as part of their reasons uh, so i think we need to see where they're going with this idea of the city so thank you all for for this great discussion so much looking forward to our next discussion in 2 weeks so i'll end the recording now but i will um invite anybody who wants to stay online for Plato's Cafe, which is just a half an hour casual unrecorded discussion on philosophy or uh, Plato or anything else we want to chat about. Um, you're welcome to stay online and that won't be recorded, but I will turn off the recording now and hope that everybody uh, will be interested in coming back in two weeks to speak more about the Protagoras and see where this dialogue is going and see what kind of conclusions we can reach together. So thank you for being here today. 